0: Alright, well good to see everybody. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to have you this morning. Can I have you all turn? I'll tell you what, I'm going to do this right this time. Turn to Ephesians 4, okay? I mean, we're in Philippians, but we're not actually going to stay there this morning. So, I had first service turn to it, and then we just went right over to Ephesians. Alright, for the sake of the new folks, let me just say that we have begun a study In Philippians doing it uh, a way we've never really done a study before our uh, regular way of teaching is verse by verse but the Lord laid it on my heart I've taught Philippians before several times verse by verse in depth and I felt like the Lord wanted us to study it since the theme of the book is joy and I think we all need joy in these days and I felt like he was saying look teach it topically isolate every place where the word joy and rejoice appears Look at the context and make that your main points and then develop each point as you uh, move your way through the book. So, so far we have looked at joy in fellowship. Next, joy in proclaiming the gospel. Number three, joy of faith. And that brings us to the fourth main point, joy in unity. Now this comes out of chapter 1 verse 27 to chapter 2 verse 2. We've already read these verses several times already we got a lot of information to cover I'll let you read those verses uh, again on your own I just will say seven times in these verses Paul using various phrases expresses his hope that the Philippian Christians will walk in unity with each other here's how this section um, is presented he talks about one spirit he mentions that they be of one mind twice Fellowship of the Spirit. He talks about them being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. This is all the language of unity, and that's what this section is all about. And again, all these phrases are Paul's way of talking about the importance of unity among believers. Yes, the Philippian believers, but all of God's people. Now, as we've already said a few times, why was the subject of unity so important to Paul? Well, It was important because, first of all, it was essential for joy, which is what we're studying, but also it's essential for dealing with trials, adversity. It's essential for us having victory as the people of God over the devil. The bottom line is, guys, we are stronger when we're together than when we are alone. That's why the writer in Hebrews, in chapter 10, verses 24 and 5, says, Do not forsake the fellowship of the saints we need each other we were never designed by god to be independent uh people apart from everyone else we have always been designed to be one body in the lord and that's why it's so important that we always maintain the unity of the faith the live streaming is great if you can't make it to church if you're sick uh if you know whatever you got going on uh it shouldn't be the norm though It's nice to sit at home with a cup of coffee and your jammies. I get that. But there's something about being together face to face. You just can't can't get away from it, right? Now, as we've been talking about, one of the greatest passages on Christian unity in the entire New Testament comes out of Ephesians 4. And oh, look at that. You're already there. I don't know how that happened. But in Ephesians 4, verses 3 and then verse 13, Paul talks about, listen, the basis for our unity with one another in Christ. In verse 3, he talks about the unity of the Spirit. And then in verse 13, he mentions the unity of the faith. Now, we are currently looking at the first one, the unity of the Spirit. And can I just say this? I was telling first service that if you drove by a church, and on the marquee it said, this Sunday we talk about unity. A lot of people would just drive right by and find another church because first of all fighting with other christians has become kind of a norm okay uh and secondly it's not a very exciting topic if you're thinking about you know you know god promised me i was going to be rich and healthy and have the most successful business in town he didn't say that but a lot of people teach it and so they look for churches that teach that but guys this is a critically important subject for a lot of reasons we'll talk about this throughout the study but at the end we'll wrap it up i can't tell you how critically important this is to your walk to your to your christianity in general um to the body of christ as a whole in fighting these the culture war which we are wow never seen it this bad so guys don't just kind of blow past this topic and say okay yeah let's get it done Take it in, okay? Meditate on it and understand the critical importance of it. Very important. So unity of the Spirit. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. We're just reviewing quickly for the sake of the new folks. Where Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, so in Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 3, Paul speaks of the importance of maintaining our unity as Christians. But then in verses 4 through 6, he goes on to give us seven spiritual realities that make up our unity and bind us together as one in Christ. And so let's read verses 4 to 6. He talks about these these things that spiritually bind us together as Christians. He said, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So up until this point, we've looked at uh, four of the seven realities that unite all true Christians together, one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, uh, one Lord, And this brings us this morning to number five, one faith. One faith. And as we go through these, try to remember, Paul said, this is what binds us together. All of these things. And we've tried to spend a little time developing each one so that you understand why these things bind us together. Here we have one faith. Let me just say this. If there is only one way to heaven, and that is by believing in one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, then, guys, that must mean there can only be one faith. Now, Jesus said in John 14, 6, the night before he went to the cross, he said to his guys, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. He made it very clear he was the only way, right? Then Peter, affirming that in Acts 4, verse 12, says there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Listen, there is a set of truths upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built, a body of truth that is absolute and immutable regardless of the times in which we live or the accepted mores of a, of a, of a society at any Given moment. Look, morality changes. Truth remains constant. I can tell you that from the time I was growing up to today. Morality has really changed, but truth remains a constant. And guys, this body of truth is called the faith. The faith. Not a faith, as in one of many faiths that will get a person into heaven. The Bible refers to it as the faith as in the one and only faith that can save. Jude calls it the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people, his church. Look, in a broad sense, the faith is the body of truth we call the New Testament. In a very, very narrow sense, it's the gospel. Now, God has entrusted to his people the faith. Jude tells us, look, God has given it to us, To, you know, keep, you know, and to watch over and to share it. Uh, God has not given the faith to the church to revise it periodically. I heard a pastor recently say, well, uh, God's condemnation of homosexuality uh, was for the Old Testament period. It's not that way anymore. And you have people trying to revise the Bible. Because it no longer fits with, this, with the mores of society today. Look, I don't care what society says is okay. I'm going back to the word of God. That is the truth that we are to build our lives upon. And it's just the way it is. The world doesn't like it. The world doesn't have to like it. This is what God said we're to do. Now, for a long time in our nation's history, the moral, you know, The morality of our nation and the word of God were very much in line with each other. That is all changed in preparation for God setting the stage for the finale. And we just see it. The finale is coming. The Antichrist is about ready to be revealed, which means the church is about ready to be evacuated off the earth in preparation for the tribulation period. And then Jesus returned to establish his kingdom. It's all falling into place, guys. It shouldn't surprise us that things are getting worse weirder and weirder the bible says that right before judgment there's going to be a moral inversion where people call good evil and evil good we're seeing it god says in isaiah chapter 3 that his 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 judgment will begin by giving people leaders that are children they act like children they have no discernment no wisdom they're reckless and feckless they just are re- but that's a part of god's judgment If a nation doesn't want his leadership and his wisdom, he'll let them turn to the wisdom of the world. We're seeing it today. But we have this one faith. Again, Christians may differ on some matters of interpretation with regard to non-essential doctrine, but all true Christians agree on the basics of the faith, that Jesus is God he died on the cross for our sins. He rose three days later from the dead bodily, that there is salvation and none other, and that our, uh, that a person is saved by faith apart from works. These are the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, and as such, they are non-negotiable. To deny any one of them means a person can't become a Christian, or is not a genuine Christian if they claim to be one. Pastor and author Ray Steadman said this, and I quote on this subject, he said, The one faith is linked to the one Lord because our faith is centered in the revealed truth about Jesus Christ. There may be many questions on minor details of the life and message of Christ, but there is no disagreement as to the fundamental elements of our faith, that Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again to save us from our sins. God has not given us different faiths for different cultures, one faith for the Jews, another for the Gentiles. No, there is one faith, one total panorama of truth that God has delivered to us through the prophets and apostles forming a seamless, self-explanatory truth. No one can truthfully say, as we sometimes hear, well, I have my truth and you have your truth. I have my Christ and you have your Christ. I have my faith and you have your faith. No, there's only one truth one historic Jesus, and only one faith, end quote. To that I say amen. Amen. Guys, that one faith joins us together across all barriers of time, nationality, race, gender, and anything else we can imagine. We'll have more to say about this as we move from Ephesians 4, verse 3, unity of the Spirit, to Ephesians 4, verse 13, the unity of the faith, all right? But let me just say this and then we'll move on if we have one faith which we do then we ought to be able to stand as true christians shoulder to shoulder before the world and give united testimony to god's saving work through jesus christ guys this is true spiritual maturity not how much doctrine we can rattle off from memory It's how much we are in unity with the true body of Christ. This is true spiritual maturity leading to true practical Christian unity. All right, number six. Middle of verse five, he talks about one baptism. I'd like to spend the rest of our time on this since it's a very important subject. Guys, the word baptize comes as a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. And it means to immerse, to immerse. The word was used of ships that had sunk and were now baptized or immersed in the sea. It was also used of a piece of cloth that was immersed into a vat of dye and was now baptized into the dye. The word is used 74 times in the New Testament. And every time uh, it's used, it uh, contains the idea of immersion, immersion. The question is into what? Well, we have to look at the context of each each passage to determine that because the word is used to speak of different kinds of baptisms. Let me just go through these quickly. I want to give you an idea because, you know, we need to understand what the Bible says on this subject, okay? First of all, you have the baptism of suffering. Suffering. You remember how one day uh, James and John, big burly fishermen, had their mama come with them to Jesus, and asked the Lord if he would grant her a request. He says, what do you, what do you want? Like he didn't know. Um, she said, well, I, I just, something small. I just want you to let my boys sit one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your kingdom. <laughs> so woman, you have no idea what you're asking. Turns to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink from and be baptized with the baptism I myself will be baptized with? What'd they say? Sure. Yeah, we're able. had no idea. He said, well, you will truly drink the cup I will drink from and be baptized with the baptism I am going to be baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give it's my father's. He was talking about the baptism of suffering or persecution. Did James and John, moving forward, were they persecuted? Were they, they, they suffered for the cause of Christ? Sure, James became the first martyr of the church. You can read Acts 12. John was the only apostle that wasn't actually martyred, but he suffered too. At one point, Caesar had him thrown onto the the Isle of Patmos, which was just a rock uh, jutting up from the Aegean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor, modern Turkey, where the Romans used it as a penal colony all by himself, alone, Jesus came to John and gave him the greatest revelation in the Bible. It's called the Book of Revelation, right? He was eventually released and he went back to Asia Minor where he became the overseer of that entire region, visiting churches until his death. But all the other apostles and disciples met with gruesome deaths. Many were crucified. Some were dragged behind horses up and down the Colosseum steps until their brains were dashed out. Some were covered with pitch and lit on fire to to his human tortures to light uh caesar's gardens okay during his parties and so on look paul said to timothy a young pastor second timothy uh, three verse 12 all those who desire to live godly lives in christ jesus are going to suffer persecution if the world isn't persecuting you in some way shape or form we've been blessed we haven't uh, up until this point in america suffered physical persecution for our faith that may change But if you haven't suffered any persecution, verbal or otherwise, there's something wrong with your witness. I'm not saying you're not saved, but you could be hiding out. You know, closet Christian. All right? Get out of the closet. Come out of the closet. Everybody else is out of the closet. Where where are Christians in the closet? Right? Right? Baptism of suffering. Second is the baptism of distress or of being overwhelmed. Now, guys, the word is still used this way in Greece today. For example, if they wanted to say, I'm overwhelmed with problems today, they would use the word baptizo, meaning that they feel as though they are immersed or drowning in their problems. Jesus used it this way in Luke 12, 50. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Here he is uh, talking about the cross, and how he was immersed in his mission to die for the sins of the world, but also of being immersed in the emotional duress of wanting to finish the work the Father had given him to do. Did he finish that work? Of course he did. And from the cross he said it, right? John 19, verse 30, it is finished. He finished the work. There's nothing left for me to do except believe except believe that's how we get into heaven it's not jesus plus lighting candles and praying roses like like i was taught in the roman catholic church it's not jesus plus going to mass or helping out in the local food pantry it's jesus putting our faith in him and that's it he did all the work he finished the work i just need to reach out and accept his gift of salvation by faith right Number three, this is a very important one. We have spent weeks on this one in past studies. Relax, we won't do it now. We don't need to. You've already got these on on tape. This is the third one, is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You remember after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples talking and teaching about the kingdom before ascending back to the Father. Right before he ascended back to the Father, uh, and I'll just take, uh, you don't have to turn to it, but Acts 1, he says, look, he said, go to Jerusalem and wait there until you are endued with this power that you're going to need to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You're not going to be able to do this work. It's a supernatural mission, the Great Commission. You're not going to be able to do it in your own strength. So go back to Jerusalem and wait until I go to the Father, and I pray the Father, and he sends the Holy Spirit back upon you. And he said this, John truly baptized you in water. This is Acts 1, uh, 5. John the Baptist, truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Guys, this is what is known as, yes, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but it's the baptism of power for service. The baptism of power for service. Now, very important subject i encourage you go online if you haven't heard this before study acts one uh we we went into this in detail especially verse eight of course uh we also took a couple weeks looking at it and we studied john's gospel chapter 14 verses 15 to 18 so the baptism with the holy spirit the next one i will have you turn to it because not all christians agree with this okay uh I refer to, it as the, refer to it as the baptism of judgment out of Matthew 3. So if you would turn there, Matthew 3, the baptism of judgment. And I want to read verses 11 and 12. Here John the Baptist is talking. And he said in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he was coming after me, Messiah, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there's a lot of Christians who read that, and I've seen this before. I've heard them say this, that, well, what that's talking about is Pentecost, where the disciples in the upper room were baptized with the Holy Spirit and and tongues of fire appeared over their heads. So there's one group, believers. I don't agree with that. I don't see it that way. I think there's two groups in mind here, uh, what John was talking about. Let me paraphrase. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I I believe that's talking about salvation. Uh, Baptism with the Spirit is a baptism of power, but you can't get that until you're saved. So it's all kind of combined here. So he's talking about the redeemed. He's going to baptize some to salvation, and he will baptize others with fire. And that's judgment. There's two groups in view here. How do I know that? Because what comes next? His winnowing fan is, fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here's what I believe the Lord Jesus, is, uh, John, actually is talking about uh, that Jesus is going to do. First of all, he's going to gather his wheat into the barn. That's talking about redeemed people into his kingdom. Into his kingdom. But he will burn up the chaff. Well, that's the unredeemed. That's the unsaved. They don't bear fruit, right? Only the redeemed bear fruit because they're born again. So he's going to gather the redeemed into his kingdom and he's going to burn up the chaff or unbelievers with unquenchable fire. That's the lake of fire. Unbelievers are going to be cast at one point into the lake of fire, where they will be literally immersed in judgment, and that will be forever. Now, number five, we just mentioned it was alluded to by or mentioned by John in Matthew three, but let's talk about it. Uh, looking at one Corinthians twelve thirteen, this is the baptism of salvation. The baptism of salvation. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul the Apostle said, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. If you look at the context of this verse, you will see that salvation is in view. So this is speaking of the baptism of salvation. Guys, the baptism of salvation is a dry baptism. There's no water involved at all. Okay? Okay. To a dry baptism where a person who receives Jesus as their Savior is instantly immersed or baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be saved. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And that's what it means when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit baptizes somebody into the body of Christ. It means they have put their faith in Christ. They've received him as their Savior. And at that instant, Instantly, miraculously, invisibly, he takes and puts them into the body of Christ. They are now saved. We didn't feel it. We didn't know anything happened. Except pretty soon, like the next day for many of us, we started to think differently. i got to get a Bible. I want to start reading the Bible. I want to start hanging out with Christians. I want to start going to church, right? Gosh, i got this burning desire to tell my friends about Jesus. Guess what? You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. You are in the body of Christ. You are saved. And he's given you a new nature. And that new nature expresses itself with new desires and so on. All right? Now, guys, let me say this. As I was reading this, I thought, well, yeah, I was thinking that... um, when Paul talks about the one baptism, well, he's talking about the Holy Spirit placing, a per, baptizing a person into the body of Christ, salvation. But I started to think about that. Paul already talked about that baptism, the first one he mentions, one body. Again, that's what we're talking about, right? The baptism of salvation is where the Holy Spirit places you into the bo- one body, the body of Christ, at the moment of salvation. And if Paul hadn't talked about that earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 4, uh, I would have thought, well, that's what he was talking about, the baptism of salvation. But since he already mentioned that baptism, it means that he doesn't have that on his mind again. And that leaves us with one final baptism he must be referring to. And guys, this is the one we most often think of when we hear the word baptism, water baptism. Water baptism is mentioned throughout the pages of the New Testament. And even though I believe that water baptism is what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 4, verse 5, as one of the things that binds us together as Christians in unity, well, in the church of Jesus Christ, practically speaking, just the opposite has been the case. The doctrine of water baptism, instead of bringing us together, Instead of bringing us together, it's become a subject that has divided Christians from one another over the centuries. And the reason for this division is because many Christian denominations believe that water baptism is essential for salvation. It's called the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. While many other Christian churches like ours believe that While water baptism is a beautiful symbol of our oneness in Christ through our faith in Him, it is not essential for our salvation. Now, hear me out before you, maybe you come from one of those churches and you're horrified. Just hear me out, okay? Before you start throwing things, (laughs) yelling heretic. All right? Let me just set all this up first by saying. Water baptism isn't a uniquely Christian thing. A lot of Christians don't know that the Jews practiced the form of baptism before Christianity. Before they went into the temple to worship the Lord, they would undergo a ritual purification in a special cleansing pool or bath known as a mikvah. A mikvah. They would immerse or baptize themselves in the waters of this cleansing pool, washing the dirt from their bodies. Why would they do that? Because it symbolized the purification from sin and all outward defilements. That was the idea. You were, uh, you were, it was signifying the washing away of defilement, sin, so that they could go into the temple and worship God with a clear conscience. And after they washed in this mikvah, then and only then could they approach God in the temple and bring their sacrifices or offerings or whatever. Now in New Testament times, if people wanted to convert or to proselytize to the Judaism, they went through a ceremonial washing referred to as baptism. We need to be careful here to note that the baptism of John the Baptist was not Christian baptism was not Christian baptism but was a baptism connected with Israel and its and its acceptance of their messiah in Christian baptism we identify with Jesus in his death burial and resurrection in other words we you know after we have received him into our heart as our savior we then get baptized right well John's baptism preceded preceded the receiving of the messiah different Now, it's important to remember that Jesus submitted himself to the baptism of John. Turn to Matthew 3, and let's read verses 13 to 15. It's important to to remember that Jesus did submit himself to John's baptism. And Matthew 3, let's start with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you when you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then it says that John baptized Jesus. Guys, the question is, if Jesus was sinless, and of course he was, if Jesus was sinless and didn't need to be ceremonially cleansed from any sins or defilement, and if he had no sins, it meant he had nothing to, be, to repent for. And we know that John's baptism is called the baptism of repentance in Mark 1, 4, Luke 3, 3, twice in Acts, chapters 13, verse 24 and 19, verse 4. Uh, if that's the case, then why did Jesus come to John to be baptized? You nothing know, to re- repent for, no sins that need to be kind of ceremonially washed away. He did it to identify with sinners and to allow us then to identify with him when we get water baptized. Hang on to that thought. We'll come back to it in just a minute or so, okay? But he was all about identifying with sinners. The Bible says he became one of us, Uh, he he was made like we are, yet without sin, right? I mean, Jesus Christ was virgin-born. That's a very important thing. I've often wondered if that should be one of the essentials of the Christian faith. If you don't believe Jesus Christ was virgin-born, you would be shocked at how many pastors and churches do not believe he was virgin-born. If he was not virgin-born, he was born with original sin on his soul. He'd be a sinner. How can sinners die for sinners? They can't. And that's why he was virgin born because sin passed from the father to the children, starting with Adam. That's why Paul says in Adam all die. In Christ all shall be made alive. But the idea is that Jesus having no earthly father was born without sin. But he identified with sinners. He took on a body of flesh. He got hungry. He got tired just like we do. He was in all points tested, like we are. Yet he never sinned, the Bible says. We'll get come back in a second to, to that. But I wanted to say this. Please understand, Christian water baptism does not in any way wash us of our sins. Now at this point, somebody is bound to say, but didn't Peter say it does? In Acts 2, verse 38. Let me read it to you. This is Peter now is given the first spirit-filled sermon of the church age, Acts 2, right? The spirit has fallen, Pentecost, right? All the disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Men and brethren, what does this mean? Peter stands up and, and begins to preach this message. And part of it was you killed your own Messiah. This is the one God promised and you killed him. Well, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the other disciples, Men and brethren, what, what can we do? What must we do? And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, the New King James says, for the remission of sins. I checked some of the other translations. Several of them have it this way. Repent and let any, every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It sounds like water baptism is essential for our sins being forgiven and washed away. So I checked with some of the Greek scholars that I have on my program. And Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, and there's others, have said that in the Greek, what Peter actually said was, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the fact that your sins have been washed away or put away. In other words, a person gets saved first and the blood of Christ washes them of all their sins. And then we baptize them in water to symbolize that. The water baptism doesn't wash sins away. It's not essential for salvation. It's a beautiful symbol uh, physically of what has taken place spiritually in the cleansing of our sins away by the blood of Christ. Water can't wash our sins away. right? We sing it, right? What shall wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Okay? We, We all know that, right? So guys, water baptism doesn't wash away sins. We just talked about that. Nor is it a necessary part of salvation. In other words, baptismal regeneration I reject. I believe the Bible rejects it as well. So then what is the purpose for getting baptized in water? Well, again, it acts as an outward sign symbolizing the washing away of our sins through the blood of Christ and identifying the new believer with their Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why we talk about baptism meaning immersion. And we just had a beautiful baptism where many of you got baptized. It was a glorious time. And what we did was we prayed with you, and then we buried, and I say we, Pastor Frank and I would We bent you backwards into the water signifying the death and burial of the old life. And then we brought you up and it signified a resurrection life has occurred. But that all happened with Jesus. Some of you were Christians for years before you got water baptized. You already went. The Bible talks about how you were uh, spiritually uh, uh, crucified, buried with Christ and risen to a new life, the life of the Spirit. Resurrection life, right? But we we like to uh, but water baptism symbolizes that right years ago when i was a brand new pastor brand new pastor um a woman a woman sent me a track and the track basically said that baptism saves but you have to baptize a certain way or it doesn't count you got to baptize three times once for the father once for the son once for jesus and you got to baptize people forward in the water because Jesus his head went forward when he died on the cross otherwise it doesn't count well I'm a young pastor I mean I'd never I'd never heard that I certainly didn't want to do anything bad if it was essential I didn't want to tell people it wasn't then they go to hell all because I'm stupid didn't know what the Bible taught so I just prayed I seriously for three days I prayed you know how the Lord is if you, if you want the truth, He will lead. The, Jesus said, "The Spirit of God, when He comes, will lead you into all truth." Right? I'm reading my devotions about three days later, and I come to First Peter three twenty-one, where Peter said, "There is also an antitype which now saves us." Now, let me stop. I, the Jehovah's Witness, years ago, I was witnessing to took me to this passage that proved to me that water baptism was essential for salvation. And he read it. There is also an antitype. He didn't know what antitype meant. Which now saves us. Baptism. There you go. He said, there you go. Okay. Antitype means symbol. There is a... Peter goes on. Baptism saves us. But not the removal of filth, the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Look, Peter is telling us that when a person believes in the resurrection, that Jesus died for their sins, third day rose again, and they receive him as they have a good conscience because they've received Jesus into their heart as their savior, they're saved. They're baptized by the spirit, we just said it, into the body of Christ, they're saved. And now there is a symbol that we exercise to kind of illustrate that. It's water baptism. But that's the antitype. That's the symbolic thing. And no doubt Peter was thinking like a Jew. And how that they would wash themselves in these mikvahs. Washing the dirt off the flesh. Peter said, it's not like that. It's not. It, it, the, the baptism I'm talking about that saves. Is not going into a ritual cleansing pool. And washing a little dirt off your body. Or being baptized in water. It's when you believe in Jesus Christ as your savior. He died for your sins, rose again, and you receive him. Into your heart, you are saved. You are saved. Guys, water baptism is the sign of the new covenant, just like a wedding ring is a sign of the marriage covenant. As I've said it before, let me say it again. A wedding ring isn't essential for marriage, especially if your fingers are too fat to wear your wedding ring anymore. I I don't wear my ring. It's uncomfortable. And I've gotten this size once or twice already. I'm done with that. My wife will tell you, though, I'm still married. (laughs) Not that I would ever try to say I'm not married. But a wedding ring is a beautiful symbol of the marriage covenant. But it's not essential for marriage. Even as water baptism is a beautiful symbol for the new covenant, but it's not essential for salvation. Look, the thief that died on the cross next to Jesus professed him, and we would say received him as Lord and Savior, at which time Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise, acknowledging that this man was now in fact saved without being water baptized. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were imprisoned in the Philippian jail, and at one point God brings an earthquake, and all the cells are opened up. The jailer thought everyone had escaped, took out his sword, ready to kill himself. And Paul said, look, don't, don't, don't hurt yourself. We're still here. And so the guy grabs a lantern, comes and falls in on his knees in the cell where Paul and Barnabas are. And he says to them, men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He didn't say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized, and you shall be saved. Again, we just mentioned it. Romans ten nine: if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. Oh, and by the way, you got to also be water baptized. He doesn't say that. And then in my mind, the greatest testimony against baptismal regeneration, in other words, that water baptism saves or is essential for salvation, comes from the mouth of Paul the Apostle himself. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In my mind, this is one of the greatest evidences that baptism does not, does not save, is not a part of being saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 14, where Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name, Verse 16, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Listen, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Notice how Paul separates water baptism from the gospel, indicating that they were separate and distinct things that were not working together to secure a person's salvation. Look, guys, if water baptism was essential for salvation, it would be a part of the gospel. And therefore, Paul, the quintessential evangelist, would never have said that the Lord didn't send him to baptize if, in fact, baptism was necessary for a person to be saved. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. If Paul believed that water baptism was essential for salvation, he would have rushed everyone who prayed to receive Jesus into their heart. He would have rushed them down to the river so fast and tossed them in to seal the deal, right? If they died before they're baptized, even though they prayed to receive Jesus, they're going to hell forever. I got to get them down to the lake or the the pond or whatever. Got to get them tossed in there. I got to submerge them so. Okay, we're, all, we're good now. He didn't do that. Didn't say that. You're in 1 Corinthians. Turn over to chapter 15 quickly. This is a great passage. I'll tell you why in a second. So many people argue about what the gospel really is. We don't have to argue about it. Paul tells us. Look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 Moreover, brethren, I declare to you, listen, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Here Paul gives us the gospel which he preached to save sinners. And notice that water baptism is not mentioned anywhere. Now again, at this point, somebody would say, well, wait a minute now. What about what Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 16? He said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Doesn't that prove that baptism is essential for salvation? Well, that does sound pretty powerful. But read the whole verse. Let me read it to you. Mark 16, verse 16. Where jesus said he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned he doesn't say but he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned guys it's always about your faith that's how you're saved it's not faith plus works water baptism would be a work it's not about believing in jesus but then doing for jesus Again, as a Roman Catholic, we were telling you to light candles and pray rosaries and go to church on certain feast days and keep holy days and not eat meat on Fridays, uh, you know, or at all during Lent, that kind of thing. So why did Jesus put it this way? Because here he is emphasizing the importance of water baptism. We know from other places in Scripture it's not essential for salvation, but it is important, and that's why Jesus couples it with believing he who believes and is baptized. The baptism is just used as a way of saying, look, you want the world to know you belong to me. It's the symbol. The symbol is important. It's not essential, but it's important, right? So important, in fact, that it became, baptizing in water, it became part of the command, the Great Commission, that Jesus left his church, but uh, left his church with before ascending back to his heavenly Father. Quickly turn to Matthew 28, and we'll bring this to a close. But I want to to show you some things. Is water baptism important? You bet it is. Jesus included it in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Here's what he said to his disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I mean, just stop there. Look, going, baptizing, and teaching are all essential elements of the disciple-making process. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Go into all the world, share the gospel, and make disciples. I mean, we can see the importance of evangelism and teaching in making disciples, but why does Jesus include the act of the act of water baptism in the process? I mean, what is the purpose of water baptism in the Christian life since you know we've already proven it doesn't save? Well, as I said earlier, it's the outward sign of the new covenant. Guys, a sign points to something. I'm talking about a literal sign on the road when you're on a journey. There are signs that tell you up ahead there is food, lodging, gasoline, or maybe there is a rest area coming up where you can get out, stretch your legs, and so on. Signs point to something. Baptism is a public sign that points to our relationship with Jesus, that we now belong to him. Let me just say this water baptism not only speaks of our belonging to jesus it also speaks of us belonging to one another as christians we're called to belong not just to believe the believing is necessary to get us into the body of christ but that really is what god is after he wants us to belong to him and to one another we belong to the family of god as christians We are members of the body of Christ, his church. And guys, it's that unity, if it's done right, if it's maintained, if it's not a forced unity, we've talked about that, if it's a true spirit led unity, that brings great joy. Because the body of Christ watches out for others in the body, right? first service that there have been times over the last 40 years of my ministry where a family was on hard times they never announced it but we found out about it so did other people in the church and all of a sudden they're racing to bring food and and, and money for the mortgage or you know one husband abandoned his wife and five small kids years ago her fridge went out her stove went out One of the guys in the church bought her a new fridge. Another guy bought her a new stove. Another uh, family helped them with food and so on. That brings joy, doesn't it? To know I'm not alone in this. I'm not alone. I have family. Whenever I go through hard times, I don't have... I'm not alone. First of all, Jesus is with me. But his body is here. And we're all members together of this incredible thing, if I can put it that way, called the body of Christ. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, it's not, it not, water baptism not only declares a person's allegiance to Jesus, but also their acceptance into the body of Christ. It says to the world, this person is now one of us. We have fellowship with each other, end quote. And that's why we like to have public baptisms. Because it's a declaration to the world that, hey, we're together. We belong to each other. You can come with us too. It's not an exclusive club. You want to be a part of it, you can come too. But I'm one of the, I'm one of the people in, 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 in Jesus' body. And boy, there's, what is the old commercial? There is uh, advantages to membership. That's saying it lightly, the body of Christ. Now, let me just end with this thought. Again, unity. Unity. How important that is. Sometimes we take it for granted. But as we've just seen, Ephesians 4 verse 3, unity is of the Holy Spirit. If unity in the body of Christ is of the Holy Spirit, where does division come from? The devil. The devil. We have gotten so used, when I say we, I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ in general. Christians have gotten so used to the idea that as long as we don't murder anybody rob a bank commit adultery we're good with god but what about the gossip oh that's not really that, that that's not really a big thing god doesn't worry about that See, that fly, flies under our moral radar doesn't it But remember what god said to the prophet isaiah he said no weapon formed against you is going to prosper This is the heritage of the children of the Lord. Now, Jesus said it this way. Against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail, right? Unless Christians in the church open the gates to the devil by being a party to his gossip, slander, putting others down. If we invite that into the church, the church is going to be defeated. And we're not going to prosper spiritually. If I allow myself to be formed into a weapon against another child of God, God said it, you're not going to prosper. I would go out on a limb and say, if you have been the kind of person, and we've all gossiped, we've all slandered, but some people have elevated it to an art form almost. And if you're one of those people that likes to kind of talk... Oh, I only share prayer requests. Yeah, we get that. Yeah, no. Um, The idea is that if you give yourself over to gossiping about another believer, I would dare say your walk is not prospering. You're wondering why you're depressed, why there's no fruit, why you can't have victory. Examine yourself. If you are gossiping you're coming against another believer a person jesus died for the bible says we are commanded to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace he's not asking us to think about it we're commanded to keep unity because jesus knew unity equals victory and disunity equals defeat a lot of god's people are defeated And I'm wondering if it's because they are forming themselves or allowing the devil to use them as a weapon to bring other Christians down. Something to think about, right? Next week, God willing, we will continue uh, in this section. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are so patient and gracious with us. And yet, Lord, so often we find ourselves impatient with others, critical hearted, putting them down, backstabbing them, gossiping about them and then we wonder lord why we're not prospering spiritually why you're not using us really give us grace to see ourselves honestly to get our knees humbly and to confess to you the sins of our hearts that lord you would forgive our sins that you'd heal our hearts that you'd restore the unity that we uh that you want us to have in the body and that lord you'd begin to prosper us individually in our church collectively we thank you For your great love for us, give us grace to love others that are different from us. The body of Christ contains all kinds of different folks. Yes, um, some are very much different from us, but that just means we have to love a little more. Give us grace to do that. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.